The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Reading from Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Ashley. <clears throat> what a text. <laughs> what a text. Um, the other night, I had the opportunity to go to an event. It was actually the porch night um, that we do here at Christ Presence, a men's gathering we do once a month. And I went to this where a friend of mine uh, told a room of about 150 people uh, the raw and honest account of his battle with alcohol. And I happened to be one of the people uh, who walked with him in his battle with alcohol, uh, both before he got sober and after. And like anybody who is caught in the grip of an addiction, this addiction for him had hold not just of his body, but also of his mind and also of his heart. And I've thought a lot about this, and I thought about it when I was studying this passage. Even though addiction and demon possession are not, I'm not equating the two things, but, but there are some similarities uh, with this passage in particular. And, and, it's, and it, one of the things is this, is that before my friend got sober, it was like he had gone to a hidden place that none of his friends could access. He was, it's like we lost him, even though he was still among us. 
And if you've walked with anybody through addiction, you probably know what I'm describing. Um, when he got sober then, it, it was more than a chemical sobriety. It was a mental sobriety, a relational one, a spiritual one. And what I watched is I watched a transformation happen. I watched a person change. Hearing him tell his story earlier this week, I was reminded of just this kind of simple truth that's anything but simple, really. And it's this, Christ transforms people. He changes people. He really does. And I I needed to be reminded of this hope. Maybe you need to be reminded of this hope. Jesus doesn't just inspire people. He doesn't just walk around teaching people things and, and making them stand back and say, that's the best TED talk I've ever heard. Right? He doesn't just inspire people. What he does is he redeems And he makes people new. And so while today's text is not about addiction per se, it is about Jesus restoring somebody in a way that makes them new. And he brings somebody back from the edge of ruin and he gives them new life. Do you need this? Are you a person where you're like, if I'm to examine my life honestly, I need to be brought back from the edge of ruin. I need to be made new. Are you walking with somebody who that's the story and and and, and you've lost them even though they're still kind of there in your life and and, and they've gone to this kind of secret hidden place that you can't access? Let's listen to this passage. One of the things I, I want to do with this passage is I want to take it at face value. Okay? This is a text that involves demons. Lots and lots and lots of demons in this passage. There's no explaining it away. This passage, if we take it at face value, there's at least 2,000 demons. So what do enlightened Westerners like us do with a thing like this. Because the temptation for many is to say that kind of old superstitious mumbo jumbo doesn't, that's not really real. It's this is psychological disorders. It's, you know, Jesus misread what was happening here. The conversation that it would, we know better now. We, we would say, no, no, people don't believe in demons, right? If we say that, what, what's the thing that we're believing underneath that that would require us to say that? If we're going to just dismiss the idea of demons in general, it's because there's a belief that is underneath that that requires that we do it, right? So what's that belief that would just disqualify demons from being real? We should think about it because the stakes are really high with that question. Because if we say no one believes in demons, what are we really saying? Are we saying, um, listen, this, there is no spiritual realm? You prepared to say that? 
Or maybe a more charitable one would be, there is a spiritual realm, but it really never intersects with the realm we live in. Are you prepared to say that? Because if we do, if we say there's no spiritual realm or there is a spiritual realm, but it never intersects with the world that we live in, here's the thing, is we are making assertions both about the spiritual realm and about the physical realm that we're really not qualified to make because we're physical earthbound creatures. And so we're not really qualified to say with certainty that there is no spiritual realm. So on what basis could we even make that claim. When you look at the life of Jesus, one thing he never did was dismiss the spiritual realm. In fact, everything he did, you get the sense when you read the stories that he is in both at the same time. Always. He says, there's more going on than you think. There's more going on than you know. He said to one of his disciples, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. That would have to be a hard thing to hear, right? Wait, he what? We may say, I've never seen a demon, and so that's why I don't believe in demons. But is it rational to say that because you've not seen something, it therefore must not exist? That's like saying if something doesn't make sense to you, it must not make sense at all. All of a sudden, we're getting into some some strange waters, right, of critical thinking. If the devil is, as Scripture says, bent on thwarting the work of God and committed to our ruin, then it makes sense that he would actually use our enlightened Western perspective against us to convince us that he isn't real. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his book, The Screwtape Letters. If you've not read The Screwtape Letters, I highly encourage you to do that. You can also get Screwtape Letters on audiobook read by John Cleese. I don't know if you knew that or not, of Monty Python fame, and I am telling you, the man sticks the landing. He gets it right. Um, so you can look that up at your library, John Cleese reading Screwtape Letters. But Screwtape Letters is basically uh, this... this um, fictional correspondence between an elder demon and a younger demon that he's mentoring as this younger demon is trying to keep a person he's been assigned to from believing in Jesus. It's a great concept. Um, but here's what Lewis, Lewis writes about this. Um, he says, um, the fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, the person he's trying to uh, subvert, if, if any of that rises in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. It's the old pitchfork and bifurcated tail trick, right? The devil says, just picture me as a cartoon character and then you will not believe me. If the devil can conjure an image no enlightened person could accept, then we will then deny the devil's existence altogether. Here's the problem. The truth is that human beings historically, 
in every nation and tribe ever known have had some kind of instinctive belief in a spiritual realm. Always. That there's something beyond us. That there's something in, 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 in the shadow, behind a veil. Right? Something in the heavens. Something that we, by our very existence, are tied to. It's why we have longings that nothing in this world can satisfy. It's why we have a sense of perfection even though nobody has ever been perfect. And so let's not let something we may have a hard time imagining prevent us from imagining. And let's also remember where this passage comes in the context of this particular gospel. If you flip back just to the verses right before this, so this passage, there's a boat ride, they're getting out of a boat on shore. You know what that boat ride was? That boat ride was when there was the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus commanded the storm to stop, and it did. So his disciples are already getting out of the boat, with their minds blown because they're hanging out and following this rabbi who commands the wind and the seas and they obey. And now he comes on shore and a man who is possessed by demons approaches him. There's plenty to disbelieve in this passage if we want to dismiss the power of Christ. And if we want to dismiss the reality of the spiritual realm, but there are two things, at least, that this passage calls us to accept. The first is that there is a spiritual realm. And the second thing that this passage calls us to accept is that Jesus Christ holds complete authority over it. Complete. This is where, when you take the big conundrum in your own life that you're asking God, I don't know how you can help with this, but I'm asking you please to do it if there's any way. This is where we say, oh, he's, <laughs> he sees much more than I do about this. And his power reaches far beyond what I could imagine. And so I want to take the passage at face value. That's what I'm saying is let's just take it at face value. Jesus encounters a man who is possessed by demons, lots of them. And let's just work through it on those terms. So Jesus' disciples, they come ashore. We're going to break down the text here. Jesus' disciples come ashore. They're on the east coast of the Sea of Galilee. They're in an area called the Decapolis, which means ten cities. And there were ten Greek-Roman cities in this area just on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it was a Gentile land. It was, it was predominantly Gentiles who lived there. It was under Roman rule. And so Jesus and his disciples are coming ashore on a land that is not full primarily of Jewish people. And so as people who practiced ceremonial cleanliness, they're now entering the land of the unclean, right? It's a Gentile land. It's a Roman-occupied land. It's a land full of pigs, right? Pigs aren't kosher. Pigs were not part of the Jewish culture. But here there's a herd of 2,000 pigs, right, on a hillside. So you've got Gentile land, farming pigs and eating pigs, and then you have this demon-possessed man who comes out of the tombs, who's living among the tombs, which makes him demon-possessed or not, makes him ceremonially unclean because he's among the dead. In other words, this scenario is about as unclean culturally as it could get. It was Gentile. It was Roman. There were pigs. There were people inter interacting with, with the dead, 
right? And this man who approaches Jesus, he's, he's demon-possessed. And what Scripture tells us about him is he's tormented. He's tormented. He's, and he possesses this supernatural strength that nobody can contain. And he cuts himself with stones. He's a cutter. And I look at that and I think, we should relate to this person. We shouldn't look at him and say, man, I don't know what, it was, I don't know what it's like to be possessed by, by 2,000 demons, so, so I guess I, I don't know how to relate to this. Yeah, yeah, we do. There's a lot of ways that we can relate to this person. The torment that he experiences is something at which any reasonable person should shudder, right? Let me just, I'm gonna highlight, and this is very quickly, but I'm gonna highlight at least, at least six aspects of his torment that we can relate to that should make us shudder. The first is that while we may not be demon-possessed, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, tells us that we have all, at some point, been subject to the oppression of dark forces that are at work in the world. We just know what it means to be oppressed. Second, we can relate to the longing to be delivered from evil, right? Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, when he taught us how to pray, one of the lines he gave us was deliver us from evil. Which, parenthetically, when I was a kid, I thought that line was deliver us from evil. And I was like, how thoughtful. And wait, why is everybody asking the Lord to do that for me? But we know what this is like, right? To, to want to be delivered from something where we're, just, we're bound and we, and we deliver me from this. Third, this man cuts himself, which is something people still do today right? He, he practices self-harm and he can't stop. You either do this or you know somebody who does this. This is something that, that we do in this world. And what's so hard about it is it's a self-destructive habit that is actually the disfiguring of an image bearer of God. And it's, and it's terrible. Four, he's cut off from community. He lives alone. And there's no greater torment than this, to be alone. It's the reason why we do a lot of dumb things is because we don't want to be alone. And so if this is what I have to do in order to not be alone, I guess I'll do that. There's no greater torment than this. And you notice how the isolation works, that he's stuck in, a, in self-destructive habits. And then when people try to help him, he repels the help. We can relate to that. Fifth, there's a hopelessness when you look at this person's situation that would break our hearts, right? He's in trouble. He needs help. He's miserable. And he's living among the tombs, which is such a picture of a person who is living as though he is already as good as dead, that he doesn't belong in the land of the living anymore, even though he still lives. And then six, Sinclair Ferguson suggested this, and I think it's got to be right, is that this was the sort of person everyone in that area would have known by reputation. They would have known legion among the tombs, right? He's the kind of person that, one, people would have grown up with maybe before he lost his mind, before he was possessed. He could have been somebody that, that was a neighbor to many of these people in this area. He became somebody that children would have feared as the boogeyman, right? The legion of the tombs. 
whose cries on a still night you could hear outside your window. That he was isolated and at the same time known. And he was known for what was wrong with him. Those are places where we can all relate to this person in some way. Either personally or because there's somebody in our lives that we're watching and we're saying that's, that's, that's their reality. So what happens then in the passage? What happens is crucial for us to see. The way the passage reads, if you saw it, it before Jesus commands the demons to go into the pigs, the text tells us that there's this exchange that is happening. And one of the things that, that, that appears in the text is that when Jesus comes ashore, the demon-possessed man seems to come to him, to, to meet him. Almost like he's a subordinate who's reporting to an authority. That he's duty-bound to present himself to Jesus when Jesus comes ashore. The man doesn't know, but the demons know. And so pay attention to how this goes down because if you're interested in following the Jesus of Scripture, this is that Jesus. I don't know who Jesus is to you, but this is the Jesus of Scripture. And it's a far cry from the image of the buddy Jesus, right? Who just likes to hang and is cool with whatever it is that we want to do as long as it makes us happy, right? This is more than that. Jesus is not somebody who just wants to see us go after our dreams and have them fulfilled. Jesus commands demons and they shudder. And so he commands these demons come out of this man and they plead with him for Jesus to leave him alone. And he commands them. And then in the, I can't even imagine what this was like, in the voice of 2,000 demons, Legion says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Do you remember the movie The Matrix? Maybe, I'm dating myself right now because it feels like a recent movie to me, but it's not. (laughs) Anyway, there's a scene at the end of The Matrix, where the main character, played by Keanu Reeves, realizes that he is in control of, that he can control the world that he lives in. That it's, that he's, that he's got power over it. And he flexes, like he, you know, flexes his arms together, and the walls of the room he's in flex with him when that happens. When I read this passage right here, that's what I'm seeing in my mind is Jesus is flexing and the rest of the world is flexing with him. Because the demons are saying, leave us alone. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. So not only does Jesus command the weather, he commands evil and both submit. Is this the Jesus you know? Is he powerful like that? See, the demons, they they want to steal and kill and destroy That's the mission of the devil. And so they beg Jesus, don't take us away from our mission. Let us continue to torment. Send us into the pigs. What's amazing about this is even for this, they need permission. They need Jesus' permission. And Jesus grants it. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I'll run it up the flagpole and see what God has to say. They ask Jesus, send us into the pigs, and he's the one 
who grants the permission. And the demons flee into the pigs. You see Jesus' divine authority here. He commands the spiritual realm. He commands it. And those in the spiritual realm know it. There's no debate. And so the demons go into the swine and the pigs then rush down the hillside and then they tumble into the sea and they all perish. The entire herd of 2,000. That's a, we should engage our imaginations when we read scripture. And you should imagine 2,000 pigs running off the edge of a cliff. I, I like to hike. I like to backpack. I go out into the Rocky Mountains sometimes with some hiking buddies and uh, a couple years ago, we went hiking, a friend of mine, and we got these back, this backcountry permit where we could go off trail and just into the mountains. And it was just the two of us. And we were hiking along the, the, the edge, uh, kind of skirting this, this mountain. And we went around the corner. We were above tree line. And we went, went around the corner, and in front of us was this beautiful overlook of this mountain range off in the distance. And so we just kind of made a beeline for it. And... I turned around to say something to my friend and saw that standing right behind him about 50 yards was a herd of about 200 elk just standing right there. And I looked, and some of them were looking at us. And we were kind of doing this standoff. And then one of them just took off running away from us, and the rest of the herd did. And you could feel the ground trembling. And it was just this kind of like rumble in the soul and it was one of the most breathtaking displays of power that I had ever witnessed in my life. 200 elk running away. 2,000 pigs. 10 times the amount of what I saw running off the edge of a cliff into the sea. The herdsmen are dumbfounded partially because they don't own these pigs. <laughs> What are we supposed to do now? So they have to go then tell the owners of the pigs what has happened, and they have to explain it to them. And people start to hear what's happened, and they come to see the scene. And one of the things they see is Jesus and this man who lived among the tombs, naked, cutting himself, possessed by demons, sitting together. Now he's clothed, and then he's in his right mind, and he's at peace. Because this is what Jesus does. He makes people new. And when the people saw what happened, they begged Jesus to leave. Get out of here. What you are bringing to us is more than we can handle. It's more than we want. It was too much. And one of the tragedies of it is it's because theirs was an economy where the pigs were worth more than the man. So I want to pull back as we, as we wrap up. to look at the implications of what's happening here and to put our hope in the power of Christ. That's what I want us to do. We all have things that we hope for, things that we long for, things that we wish were different. And this passage is telling us, put your hope in the power of Christ. So let's pull back from the eastern coast of Galilee and look at this encounter from a higher view. A battle is taking place in this text. A battle here. It's a clash of kingdoms. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The townspeople are watching what happens when the kingdom of God comes up against the forces of evil. 
And what they're seeing and what we're seeing is evil yields and it folds. It yields and it folds under the command of Christ. And then this giant herd of pigs perishes. And you may look at that and say, why all the carnage? I think the reason is because there's something very symbolic happening. Pigs were unclean. And the demons possess these unclean animals and they all perish. What's happening here is Jesus is demonstrating his ability to destroy the powers of hell. He's flexing. He's showing what he's capable of. He's showing the ferocity of his holiness. He's going, and, and we have to remember that he's, in the act of doing this, is he's setting one person free. One. That's what this is for. There's a solitary, tormented man who's living among the dead. But also by extension, what he's doing is for all the tormented ones who are bound in seemingly inescapable despair and isolation. Jesus is showing this is the kind of power I deal in. So if you think there's no hope, there's hope because there's power. And that power comes from Christ. I've been around people who are enslaved to sin or caught up in some destructive habit. I have that in my own life. You do too, right? And it can be hard to get through to people who are caught and tangled in this. Like the person who has gone away and lives in this kind of distant fog where you can't access them even though they're there and you're with them, it's like they're not really there. Maybe you know somebody like this. Maybe you are somebody like this. See the power of Jesus. If we are to appeal, let it be to the power of Christ and his commitment to redeeming and rescuing and making people new. This passage is one of many where Jesus shows up in power and his power and authority are on display and a lot of people just want him to leave. The systems we create can be so flawed and so fragile that if Jesus were to address them, they'd fall apart and we'd want to hold it together the best that we can. Where in your life are you doing that? Are you looking and saying, we have an ecosystem and it's barely working, but it's working and if Jesus comes in, he's going to mess it all up. He's going to dismantle it. Where is that in your life? And I would just ask the question, what are you trying to preserve? What are you trying to hold together? Hope in the power of Jesus. What legion has you tormented and isolated in self-destructive habits? Hope in the power of Jesus. And listen to him. What help is he sending you? The formerly possessed man, he begs Jesus to let him follow him. Let me go with you. And Jesus says no. And this no is not because Jesus has no mission or purpose for this man. It's because Jesus actually does have a mission and purpose for this man. Jesus tells this man, I want you to stay put. I want you to stay in your community. And I want you to tell your neighbors about the mercy and the power of Christ. That's what my friend was doing earlier this week. He was staying in his community and he was talking about the mercy and the power of Christ. 
This man becomes a prototypical apostle to the Gentiles, right? He kind of predates the apostle Paul in this. He's, he's proclaiming the mercy of God all over the Roman-occupied, Gentile-populated Decapolis, these 10 cities. So much of the ministry we do is local. It's with our neighbors, it's with our friends, it's with our coworkers, it's with the people in our lives. And it's a ministry we're all called to. It's why we have NIFW. It's why I always say, hey, we're gonna grow by word of mouth. Tell your friends. It's because this is how the Lord works. What's the story that you have to tell? Has Jesus met you in your isolation and torment? Tell the people in your life. Has Jesus set you free from something no one else could? Tell the people in your community. Has Jesus made your life new? Bear witness. Because this is what Jesus does. And if you want to know who Jesus is, part of that is to know what Jesus does. And what he does is he transforms people. He doesn't just inspire, he redeems. And he makes people new. And so if this is your story, tell it. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for this passage of scripture. I love the way that it challenges presuppositions that we have about the physical world and the spiritual realm. Father, I pray that as we read scripture and we come to passages like this, that you would keep us humble to admit to ourselves and to others that there's more going on than we can see and know. Even as we, as we try to understand what's happening, that we would always remember that we see through a glass darkly, but you don't. You see clearly, and one day we will too. So Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the communion table that we have now to come to where we see very clearly in these elements your redeeming work, what it took to redeem and restore. This table that reminds us that we can confidently hope in the power that you offer because it is a power that defeated death itself. We're grateful for your love and your kindness. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.